Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Jenna Spinelli. I am the founder of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, which is an initiative of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. And on behalf of IDEOS Institute and the Democracy Group, I'm excited to welcome you to our panel on dialogue and political polarization as part of the inaugural National Day of Dialogue. It's, it's great to see folks from all across the country joining us. I see we have uh, Connecticut, Mississippi, Seattle, uh, Los Angeles, Berkeley, lots of lots of folks from all across the U.S. joining. I, I hope you all enjoyed the, the rest of the, the programming that happened as part of the National Day of Dialogue. And I think uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to end the day on a strong note here with this, this panel. Uh, over the next hour or so, we will be exploring the question of whether hard conversations can help solve hard problems like America's increasing polarization. Uh, we are thrilled for the opportunity to add our network's expertise to the wonderful lineup of programming that's happened already throughout the day. Uh, just a couple of, of housekeeping things before we dive into the questions. Uh, this event, along with all the others from the National Day of Dialogue, will be recorded and available for later viewing at nationaldayofdialogue.com. So check your email for uh, follow-up information about how to access all of those recordings. Uh, and speaking of email, uh, look in the chat for uh, the opportunity to sign up for the Democracy Group's mailing list. Uh, we are a network of 16 podcasts that are all about making our democracy stronger and working together to do so. Uh, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, which comes out every other week and highlights new episodes from across our network, some of the books we're reading, uh, ways to get involved in democracy-related causes and organizations, and, and a whole lot more. Um, we'll also be sharing links to the, the podcast that our panelists host. I hope you'll check all of those out as well. Uh, I have a lot of questions for the panel, but we'll also leave plenty of time for your questions as well. So just put them in the chat and uh, we will get to as many as we can. But let's uh, get started by uh, having everyone uh, introduce yourself and just give us some opening thoughts about how you think about the, the relationship between dialogue and political polarization. So uh, Kami, why don't you kick us off? Uh, thank you, Jenna. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be invited to participate in this event. Uh, kudos to the IDEOS Institute and their funders. The funders are important, so we're grateful to you. Uh, my name is Kami Akavan. I was uh, born in Iran. I grew up in South Louisiana, and I live currently in Southern California, where I'm the executive director of the USC Center for the Political Future. Formerly, I was the CEO of an organization called ProCon.org, where we looked at the pros and cons of controversial issues. Uh, over the course of my career, I've probably served about 300 million people on diverging issues, uh, people who have, are vehemently opposed to each other's ideologies, possibly even hate each other's guts. And how can we bring any form of unity or any form of empathy uh, into those corners? And it can be done. And the way that I think about it to your question, Janet, is I think about it the same way or similarly to how I think about global warming. It is a huge global problem that you think, I'm, I'm one person. What can I possibly do to dent this problem? And then I think, well, there's actions that I can do individually. Uh, and then I think there's actions that I can influence my neighbors and, and coworkers and colleagues and friends and family to do uh, so I can do that. And then it becomes the conversations then become the equivalent of recycling or taking the bus or riding a bicycle. So I think about dialogue that way. It is part of the solution that we are in control of and we got to do it. And if enough of us do it collectively, then we are going to see those changes that we want to see. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Richard, why don't you uh, pick, pick up the, the baton from there? 
Yes, and and thank you to the IDEOS Institute. Delighted to be on this panel. Thank you to the organizers and and sponsors as well. Um, I really agree with what Kami was saying about the importance of dialogue. I'm sort of half and half. I was born to English parents and lived in the United States as as a child and a teenager, and then lived in the UK for for 20 years before coming back to the US. So dialogue through difference has always been important to me. Um, I'm a journalist, and uh, I spent more than three decades uh, as a national radio uh, network reporter in in news before uh, launching a podcast called How Do We Fix It? in 2015. And I'm now a podcast consultant. I work with clients, including nonprofits in the kind of bridging community space uh, that tries to combat polarization, which, which I think is the biggest crisis we now face as a nation uh, through improving dialogue between people of, with different points of view and different backgrounds. Thanks, Richard. John. Hello, everyone. I, I too, am a huge IDEOS and Christy Vines fan. This is uh, really an honor to be on this panel and to be with such uh, distinguished guests. I am uh, John Gamba. I am the Entrepreneur in Residence and Director of Innovative Programs at Penn's Graduate School of Education. Our center is committed to advance innovation and equity in worldwide education. We do that through a continuum of programming, including boot camps, uh, Entrepreneur in Residence hours, and our signature program, the Milken Pen a GSE a business plan competition. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring of ed tech startups and, and founders, um, but sort of my uh, gateway into this conversation, uh, kind of like Kami, although not 300 million people, <laughs> uh, we were tired as a family uh, of ruining our Thanksgiving and our Christmas dinners over uh, political conversations and uh, we found ourselves, my parents and my sister and I, going to neutral corners and saying, okay, dinner's over. We got to go to neutral corners. We can't talk about this anymore. What do we do? And as a family, the Gamba Family Foundation, uh, we started the, uh, the Gamba Red and Blue Exchange at the University of Pennsylvania, which is a program to advance uh, viewpoint diversity. And we do that through pretty much two lenses. One is through the lens of content bringing red and blue content to the table and exposing and extending that content to the students in a classically blue environment of an Ivy League university to try to really diversify the content that is being brought to these, these young impressionable minds, but also competencies, the competencies of good dialogue. And I have to credit Michael Della Carpini and Dr. Harris Sokoloff and a lot of their research and their experience in bringing competencies to the table. How do we talk to each other? Seek to understand before trying to be understood. Uh, talk slowly. Uh, be disagreeable, but humble in your disagreement. Uh, so we've launched the Red and Blue Exchange two years ago. We have an incredible course, Can We Talk, led by Chris Satulo and, and Dr. Sokoloff. And uh, we're just really excited to advance this work in an environment that, uh, that, that has a lot of challenges as it relates to being woke uh, or going to safe spaces where we want to welcome uh, uh, civic dialogue and, and good conversations. And I'm just very excited to participate on this panel and, and exchange with our esteemed guests. Wonderful. And I, I see uh, a thumbs up to those those uh, resources and those those experts you were mentioning, John. So clearly that that resonates as well. Uh, last but not least, Kara. Hello, good evening. Thank you, Jenna and Brandon and Christy and everyone at IDEOS and the Democracy Group. It's just wonderful to spend time with, with uh, colleagues from different podcasts within the network and from other organizations that to see our shared commitment really to this work. I think this is just sort of a ray of hope right now, especially as we're coming up on the first anniversary tomorrow of the January 6th insurrection, um, which really highlights for me 
um, the importance of making sure that we do have dialogue and expose ourselves and reach out to others. Um, because when we do get caught in our in our own bubbles, um, we can see how things and 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 don't get the right uh, accurate information. Um, we can see a very poor example of civic engagement. Um, <laughs> what not to do <laughs> civic engagement. Um, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, of course. Um, so I'm associate director at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. Um, uh, and we are we are not a liberal bastion. <laughs> um, we actually have a lot of good data on our students that show that we are uh, our, our school colors are purple. Um, we are also a purple campus. Um, when and and pretty evenly split. Um, a third uh, identify self students self identify as liberal. A third as conservative, and a third you know self identify down in the middle. Um, and what we like to do at, at JMU Civic, our mission is to address pressing public issues um, and to cultivate a more just and inclusive democracy, inspiring our students and the and the pub and, and members of the public, working in partnership with faculty, staff, students, and community, state, and national partners to do that. For us, it's really about what are the pressing problems that we see um, and how can we come together to solve them. Um, I think dialogue plays an important role in just learning what different perspectives are. Um, and it, it's really important though to think about how we can set up those conversations and how we can set up those dialogues because a dialogue set up poorly um, can go, can actually just create more harm. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing uh, in, in, in our politics is sort of the lack of spaces where we can come together and build trust and actually have those opportunities to, to talk to one another. Um, but I also do want, in just these opening remarks, just want to talk about the limits of dialogue. Um, dialogue cannot address injustices in our democracy. And so, you know, yes, we need dialogue, <laughs> um, but we also need to think about the other tools. Um, as John mentioned, you know, it, it is complicated Competencies. We measure the competencies that our students gain while they're at the at our university. And when we think about civic engagement, we're thinking about what are the skills, the knowledge, and the values that we want students to develop, and which tools are they going to need? Um, what, which tools are any of us as individuals going to need to engage uh, effectively in our political and civic life? Right. Yeah, uh, well, well put, Kara. I think we will uh, hopefully return to, to several of those themes here uh, over the, the next uh, couple of minutes. But, you know, just one more kind of big, big framing question before we get to some of those specifics. There are, there are any number of things, I think, that contribute to polarization, uh, you know, whether it's, it's media consumption or other aspects of your political or cultural identity. I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent you, you all think dialogue or, or a lack thereof is, is in that mix? Where does it fit in terms of all of, of, of the different things that we know lead to this, this wicked problem of, of political polarization? I'll uh, tackle that one first, Janice. So it's a big question. Um, dialogue is a form of learning. Um, if I went in, out into the world based on what I was born into the world with, I would know zero. Uh, it is all through a process of self-education and communication with others. If I talk to an engineer for 10 minutes who is an expert on bridges, I'm going to learn more about bridges than I could from reading 10 books on bridges, right? Because I will have absorbed that much information from this other source. So dialogue really is that. It's a way to benefit from someone else's knowledge, wisdom, perspective in order to grow our own. And that's all I see it as. It is a form of self-education to improve our perspective on the world. And the reason why it's so important is because left our own thoughts unchallenged can often take us to the wrong conclusions that we want for ourselves, uh, right? And so there's people like Daniel Kahneman who will describe very eloquently about how our human psychology wants us to think in certain ways, uh, to be responsive in milliseconds to certain conditions in our environment. And yet, if we apply this prefrontal cortex and really slow down our thoughts and think about it, 
you might say, whoa, I, I don't want to do that thing I wanted to do at the instant that I thought it. I want to do the second or the third thing I thought about doing because that's really in my best interest. So for me, dialogue is a way of getting to that, to our genuine interest, was really in our best interest based on educating ourselves. And it's not just me, I'll tell you, and this is a story and then I'll, I'll be quiet, uh, but our pal John Gamba here, he goes to the university, uh, works at the University of Pennsylvania, which was founded by Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin famously was advising a friend, Joseph Priestley, on whether that friend should get married. And Joseph Priestley wanted to marry his own cousin. And so he said, Ben, what do I do? I want to marry my cousin. I think I love her. And, and so there's this exchange of letters. It's really, it's great. You should re read them. Uh, and Ben Franklin advised him, take a sheet of paper, fold it in half, write pro on one side, con on the other, and come up with all the reasons why you should or shouldn't marry your cousin. Bottom line, he did not marry his cousin. So it works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that it might be helpful to define what we mean by dialogue, because dialogue to some may mean we should have more conversations, hard conversations with people who are not like us and see the world differently. But then there are also uh, another, there's another form of dialogue, which is working on projects together, a dialogue that comes out of, for instance, being a member of a basketball team or a softball league, where you may be playing a game or working on a project with, with people who are completely different from you. And that can also be a really valuable form of dialogue. I, I, where I think that, that dialogue, if, if this is the right definition, um, between, between people who are not necessarily right in your, your set of, of people, where that can be really helpful is just broadening your experience of the world in, in much the same way I think that travel does. And then also subjecting your opinions to the rigor of, of being tested uh, with, with with people who see things see things very differently, and who are not only politically different from you, but may have come from a different race or class or ethnic background or nationality. There are just many different ways to to parse this and and figure out what we're talking about when we say dialogue. I'd love to expand on that as well, Richard, um, because I think. You know, we, we do know that a lot of our polarization, political polarization has been elite driven, right? And so I think we also need to think about when we're talking about dialogue, what kind of dialogues are set up for, uh, for elected leaders um, and, and for, for government officials and then those with whom they interact with in the business community or the nonprofit sector, for example. Um, and, you know, what we have found is that there, we're, we're lacking there, there is less space for members of Congress, especially, to just have chance interactions, chance dialogue, where they can build trust. There's not a shared space for them to have lunch or work out together anymore. And so there, there's also, if we're, we really need to think about what are the, the elite problems with our, the problems among elites um, and, and our political system and the spaces for the natural, the, um, the, the less uh, construed spaces for dialogue, not just the House or the Senate floor, right? Um, or or you know, the, the public debates that we see um, in the media or on social media. Um, but, but how can we design spaces where we can build trust? Um, and there's, there's a number of studies that show that when we can have these more informal settings where we can come together um, and, and build trust, um, even and especially there, there's a really important role for sharing meals with one another. Um, uh, and, and in my own research with communities um, across the country, um, this actually ended up being a really important um, factor in crossing bridges to the other side um, and then helping communities um, in their struggle to clean up the nuclear weapons complex. Um, so I think we, you know, there's the formal settings and then there's the informal settings. And those, and we know that those informal settings, especially in Congress, 
Congress, and we're talking in, if we're talking about political polarization, those informal settings has decreased. Um, and we're also, I think we're going to talk about this more a little bit later, but as we've become increasingly segregated as a society by class, especially, um, you know, there's there's less informal mechanisms for us to interact with with others across socioeconomic uh, and, and racial lines as well. And building on that, I think uh, you raised the issue of, of government officials. Uh, then Senator Obama in 2006 said, we live in a culture that discourages empathy. And that's the word that I think about. Almost the antithesis or the, uh, the, the antonym of polarization is empathy. Obama said, a culture that, often that too often tells us our principal goal in life is to be rich, thin, young, famous, safe, and entertained. A culture where those in power too often encourage these selfish impulses. Man, isn't that foreshadowing in terms of where we are today? That was in 2006 in a commencement address at Northwestern University. So uh, I think a lot about the ideal uh, and the value of empathy and excited that this year we have a new class that will be taught by Dr. Leah Howard called Political Empathy and Deliberative Democracy which talks about the issue of what if our elected officials were built or had a value of empathy and, and drove with emp empathy or led with empathy first before they thought about owning the libs or owning the conservatives or, or, or whatever the names we would call in terms of the uh, political polarities. Yeah, uh, you know, to to kind of bring this this all around, I, I couldn't help but think about it. So I play in a community bands and uh, that I think it, and I, I live, I, I didn't mention earlier in State College, Pennsylvania, which much like you were saying about uh, JMU care, we are also a very purple area in terms of, you know, we have the, the campus itself is, is fairly liberal, but you go far, you know, not that far away and you're into a much more conservative area. So the band really brings all of that together and in a, in a way that's not explicitly political, but I, I found that that has been a really great experience to to broaden my horizons and and I I hope that you know I my dialogue with my my fellow saxophone players has helped broaden their perspectives as well. Um, but it, you know we we have a question here from Steve that I think gets to some of of what we were talking about in in terms of um, you know how how to engage whether it is in a in a formal setting or an informal setting, whether we're talking about elites or just everyday people, uh, dialogue in, in Steve's question here presumes a, a degree of, of tolerance of, of opposing beliefs. Um, Steve mentions as well, Popper's paradox of tolerance, if that rings a bell for anyone. But you know, how, how do you all think about the, the limits of, of tolerance or you know, how much tolerance should we you know, bring to to the table, so to speak, what should we expect from others? Um, and that that kind of leads to something that I was thinking too about how this this idea of coming to the table in in good faith, I see those things as maybe being two sides of of the same coin as we're thinking about how we we show up in these situations. I think that's a great question. I'm going to speak for how things and how we're feeling, tough word, feeling at the University of Pennsylvania. And that is there's a fine line between this idea of having an open mind, being tolerant, but also promoting a safe space or a safe environment. For instance, I personally believe that when Thomas Homan, who was the so-called arch architect of the uh, the, the family uh, separation policy at the border was invited to the University of Pennsylvania, who was booed and he never got on stage. Not exactly tolerant, not exactly supportive of viewpoint diversity. A lot of people said, we're not going to have Thomas Homan here because he promotes violence and we are a safe campus. I believe that he should have been allowed to speak and that he should be beaten by the Socratic method uh, by people who could argue the alternative. On the other hand, Dr. Amy Wax, a professor in our law school who is abjectly racist in her views and, and spews racism, I think that personally, personally crosses a line. Some conservatives think she's a tenured professor, she should be allowed to speak and have the same mentality or, or prism uh, for her as we do with the Thomas Homan. I think there are fine lines. We celebrate that we are a safe space 
that we are an inclusive environment. And so I think we have to be careful about that notion of tolerance, but also at the same time, embrace Socratic method, em embrace conversation, embrace viewpoint diversity, because we will be limited if we're all thinking the same thing and all thinking uh, through the same lens. I do a podcast uh, with someone I disagree with um, and, and on how do we fix it. Jim Meggs, my co-host, is uh, he calls himself a squishy libertarian. He's definitely more, much more of the right than the left. I'm kind of tend to be moderately left. And I found that by testing my argument with him, it's, it's really a valuable form of, of dialogue and a, and a good way to go about this. I, I think that when it comes to what we tolerate and what we don't tolerate, I, I'd like to promote kindness as, as a value more than we currently have in our, in our dialogue and our political debate. And I, I really agree with, with what John just said about the importance of the Socratic method. Um, what I think that we should not be af afraid, or how do I put this, that, that we should, we should, yeah, not be afraid of 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 not tolerating um, conspiracy theories and hatred. I think that's where the boundaries lie, and and I think that that when you when you yeah when you tolerate um, openly racist or hateful sentiments, then that that really does cross a line. One other point I'll I'll make on that front is. Uh, um, sorry, Kira, uh, is uh, uh, borrowing an analogy from Jonathan Haidt, who talks about uh, opinions as elephants, right? And so the way that we currently think is like that elephant, and we're the little jockey sitting on top and trying to steer it one way or the other. We don't want this confirming information. Our psychology rejects it. Uh, so we have to have a different part of our brain that says, no, actually, I want this confirming information. I want to make sure that this belief is challenged and tested, like you were saying, Richard, uh, and that I kind of put it through the ideas gym uh, so that it can get stronger. But most people they can, they have their limits. There's some issues they'll be very open-minded on and some issues that are a little closer to their identity. Uh, that's where there's, there's no room for, for tolerance. There's, once you cross the line, it becomes a threat and not just a, a sticks and stones may break my, my uh, bones, but words will never hurt me. No, the words do hurt me. The words are very hurtful. Uh, and that's where, uh, for a lot of us, our identity goes hand in hand with a lot of our ideologies. And when it becomes that intermixed, it's very hard to be tolerant of viewpoints that we find not just offensive, but hurtful and wrong. And it's to where we don't think of the other side as our opponent. We think of the other side as our enemy. And that distinction, I think, is what's driving so much of the polarization. And it came from somewhere. It hasn't always been this way. You know, it came from somewhere. And Kara talks about systems. There's a lot of systems that have led us into this place where we are now. Um, and as much as we need to address the systems, we absolutely do, and we can talk about them. Uh, but I also think that it's not fair to say it's all on the systems. There's a lot that's on us, too, as individuals. Uh, for John's uh, dysfunctional Thanksgiving or Christmas dinners, he said, like, hey, let's fix this. Let's go to initial court. Let's do There's things that we can do. And I think to the point about, uh, about uh, a tolerance, uh, that's on us. We can increase or reduce the level of tolerance to our own satis uh, satisfaction, and we have to somehow get our brains to think most of the time, not all of the time, that it is better to have disconfirming information because we're getting, we're making ourselves mentally stronger through the process, or maybe we're learning that we had it wrong the whole time, and we're just now, someone is correcting us, oh my gosh, thank you, right? That sort of mentality is rare, but I think it's more constructive to try to, to do that for our own sake, right? I'm not saying it's easy to do, but I'm saying that uh, that kind of thinking, I think, can get us past this whole tolerance, intolerance. It's not monolithic. It's really about when my identity feels threatened, then you're the bad guy, right? And that's, I, I think of it that way more broadly. How do we get through that, Kami? Not to open up a whole can of worms, but who is the cross-the-line police? We struggle that a lot in, in, in our work. One person's 
effort to be tolerant could be another person's view of being woke. Uh, and, and then it just disintegrates from there in terms of good conversation. So I, I, I really do struggle with that. On the Thomas Homan case, I personally think that, but I wasn't a family member who was in a cage on the border who was impacted by that policy. So I could see the argument that would be made that would say, no, that's violent, racist, in unacceptable, intolerant behavior, not allowed to speak on our canvas campus, and that wouldn't be wrong. The other conservative who said, Amy Wax is a tenured professor and has the ability to say, I don't think Asians should be uh, immigrating to the United States, it's not good for America. That's her opinion. Should we hit her with the Socratic method? I struggle with that a lot and wonder what you think as experts and researchers in this area, where is that line? How do you not cross the line? What do you do? Is it Twitter who says, that's hate, sorry, you're out? You know, how do we really set the cross the line police adjudication, if you will? I defer to Carol on this one. At a Purple University, uh, you can speak to this point so well. Well, um, I, I'm not sure that anybody should really be adjudicating because, you know, it, we, we are really talking about very, you know, we can all look um, at the same data and come have different inferences and different takeaways from the same data, right? Um, I, I show this in, in my classes. Um, there was a great example from the 2016 presidential election where um, Gary King, you know, gave the same polling data to different pollsters and all the pollsters had very different predictions, right? Because we all have underlying assumptions, perspectives, and experiences, right, that are going to inform our view of an event. And so I think, you know, part of this is just thinking about recognizing our own biases. I think going back to what Cami said about our individual responsibility, you know, starting as an individual, okay, what are my own biases? Um, what are my own beliefs? And if we have the opportunity to engage in dialogue or push ourselves to, to enter into one, which I strongly encourage that we all do, um, you know, to, it's not, it's not just about tolerance, but it's about what can I learn from this experience? Um, what can I learn by understanding how that other person has formed the beliefs that they hold? Um, and, and, and taking it back to January 6th, um, Harry Dunn is a Capitol Police officer that's been speaking out, calling for accountability. And, you know, one of the things he said that was so scary to him in defending democracy on that day was that everyone believed what they were doing. They believed they were right. They thought they were saving America, right? And... And so I think, and, and not everyone is going to have the opportunity to engage in dialogue. So we're also in, in this very, we're, we're talking right now as people who have the privilege and the space to engage in dialogue. And so we need to recognize that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about, I live right off of I-81 and it's a huge trucking, you know, do truckers have the opportunity to engage in political dialogue? You know, I, I'm, I'm honestly thinking about that. And if we're going to solve our problems, how do we have these conversations with other people? And one more thing to John's point, um, I was in Charlottesville. I lived in Charlottesville in 2017. Um, and Nakaya Walker, who later became the mayor of Charlottesville, um, was out there. And, and there's photos, you can Google it, of her talking to, um, to one of the neo-Nazi white supremacists. And one of the things she said that day that really struck me um, was, how can you expect me to talk with somebody who threatens my very existence, right? And so that's what I think of in terms of, you know, okay, if there's a line of adjudication, that is probably it, right? Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, there's pictures of her still out there actually engaging in conversation with, with members of, of militias and members of the KKK. But this, this problem is not merely one on the right. It's also on the left. How, uh, how can a small business person in a neighborhood where his business is being or her business is being burnt down by protesters also 
their their um, identity, their their livelihood, uh, their place of business is also being threatened. In, in, in and so it's you know it's not merely I mean it's not merely a a, a problem from one side of the political spectrum. Yeah, and you know this gets to I think we're sort of talking around this idea of of tribalism, uh, which which uh, one of our attendees noted we have not really brought up uh, directly heretofore. I think we, but we've we've sort of hinted at it a little bit, right? So you know, polarization is is directly linked to being part of of these tribes and these issues of of identity we were talking about and and dignity and you know, you being tied up in, in your, your political beliefs. And I want to bring this back to, to January 6th. I've, I've heard and read stories. I'm sure you all have as well over the past couple of days about, um, you know, there, these ongoing efforts to figure out how to talk about the big lie or, you know, people who are struggling to communicate with family members uh, who who believe these these ideas, and I, I found myself thinking as as I was listening uh, to to something I heard on the, on the radio yesterday. Like, at what point is it not productive to kind of keep trying, or you know, move move to to something else that might be a little bit easier to to find a a point of of connection, or you know. How how can we, when faced with things things like this, try to, to chart a path forward? And, and is there ever a point where the, the tribalism or the polarization becomes so severe that trying to go directly into a dialogue might not be the, the best step to take? Um, I'll just say having difficult candid conversations with very close family members, one of whom is my mentor, and we just can't agree politically. I will say the power and the danger of but. When somebody says, I will never support Donald Trump, or I will never, I don't think January 6th is acceptable, or complete repudiation of those actions, but the alternative is so unacceptable a left Joe Biden, I have to stay with Donald Trump because his I don't agree with his personality, but his principles align with my principles as it relates to conservatism. It brings me back to Kami when he said 300 million people hate each other. Are we at that point now? I mean, I almost feel like we are. Like literally David French talks about the brink of civil war. You know, if, if I have to hang up or, or end... Thanksgiving dinners with family members, you know, think about what I'm doing with my other conservative friends. I mean, these are people I love. These are people I trust. These are, are we at that point, I think is, is a, a real question. And then what do we do? If we only define things by politics, perhaps we are at that point, but I, I, I really don't think we are. Uh, I think that there's so many people who, who don't see politics as the most important thing in their lives. And there are just so many different ways that we can communicate and and be with one another. The pandemic, without a doubt, has made things worse. We're more physically isolated from others than, than we used to be. And I think that makes it harder for us to have everyday conversations with people who um, see the world very differently from, from us. Um, and then we're also, I think... Speaking of politics, our tribal identities in terms of our are, are more politically um, parsed than they used to be. I mean, when I was young, I'm young enough, I'm old enough to remember this, there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. And party labels then mattered a lot less to our tribal identity than they do now. And so that's part of part of the problem. I agree with what, what you just said, uh, Richard. And I, I just want to frame that that we can think about. So we all feel it in our in our dining tables, in our communities, in our universities, 
uh, in our society, in our culture, we see it at the highest levels. We are freakishly scary divided, right? And nobody wants that uh, feeling, certainly don't want it in their close personal lives. Part of what gives me comfort is knowing that it hasn't always been like this. We have been opponents. We're supposed to debate with one another. We're supposed to disagree on issues. This is how our system of government is supposed to work. We as the participants shape the policies and we fight and argue about it and then that's it. But I think the the key thing to remember is it came from somewhere. So think about where we are right now. And I think about the things that bring us together. Those unifiers are really diminishing. And those unifiers are things like the common enemy of the, during the Cold War. Think about, you know, people who, who did public service in the military, the GI Bill, you know, the greatest generation. Those people are dying off. There's very few of them around. Our participation in unions, churches, this, the public square is shrinking, retail, movies, concerts, these things are low. And then like you were saying, Richard, the pandemic has driven us into further isolation. We're humans are a species out of the millions of species on the planet. We're one of the more social ones, right? And so it's not in our nature to want to be so divided. So we end up clinging to people who think and act like we do. So our unifiers are going away. Um, And at the same time, these dividers are accelerating on steroids, right? And I'm thinking about things like partisan gerrymandering, about the things you were saying, Kara, this bipartisan precedent erosion, the congressional schedule literally changed so they don't live in DC anymore. They just fly in, fly out. They don't have these across the aisle friendships anymore. The primaries have taken on an increasingly important role in politics. General elections are largely predictable at a, at a district by district level, like to the tune of about 95 to 90% of our our congressional districts are predictable. We know it's a D or it's an R. We just don't know which one is for the primaries to determine. So I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about identity politics. I'm thinking about social media algorithms. I'm thinking about search engine algorithms. I'm thinking about traditional media where we used to have three channels and now we have you know 3,000. Um, and I'm thinking about the self-sort where my pal Brandon Stover, who produces for the Democracy Group, who lives in Austin. And it's a city where... Are you going to move into the community that has trucks with gun racks? Or are you going to move to the community with plug-in Priuses? And we're going to self-sort, right? And I'm thinking about how in the 70s and 80s and 90s, this hyper-focus on STEM, not so much on critical thinking, civic, social studies, and the compound effect of all these things, unifiers shrinking, dividers accelerating. And here we are. We didn't cause that problem. You know, we, we didn't do this, but we're living in that world. So part of it is like, we got to give ourselves a break and say, I didn't cause this problem, but I'm living in it. And it's kind of incumbent on me to do something about it. But I also know that I don't need to feel like it's my fault because it's not. If I kind of want to be mad at this person and like really be mad at them, it's because of a lot of factors that preceded this, right? That, that make me so angry, that make these, these certain beliefs just trigger me to to rage or intolerance, or you're you're out of my social media life, you're out of my family. I don't care if we're blood related. I just I can't deal with you anymore. Um, that per, that sort of thinking, I think, is part of it. Is it's not our fault, and there's some comfort in that that knowing it's not our fault. But I think if we know the origins of it and we can look at how this all came to be to where it is now, it's kind of empowering uh, because we know that it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and that we can do better and we must do better. Or if we don't want it to be any better, then we'll just let the status quo continue. But all of us, the reason we're even doing this conversation today, the reason all of you are listening to this conversation today is because we know we can do better and we want it to be better. Does anybody think that this idea of polarization, uh, a real quick question, uh, uh, polarization is, is fleeting? Like I often think, at one point, we thought the actions of Richard Nixon were just unbearingly unacceptable. And we go through now where some people think that January 6th was a peaceful protest. Um, I, I find that fascinating, almost as much as I find it fascinating with people I have political conversations with, where we get so rabid and entrenched in our positions, but it's also often fleeting. We, I could have a drag out, hit down using links, using evidence to try to substantiate my argument with a family member. 
be so angry. And then two seconds later, I can be like, isn't Jalen hurts awesome. And have a conversation with him about the Philadelphia Eagles. That is so like uh, aligned that we love each other again. Like sometimes I feel like it's totally incorrigible. And we are, somebody said in the chat, all that's left is the dust or the dirt over the co coffin. And then at moments I say this too shall pass. We are a great experiment and we will push forward. And uh, you know, the goodness will come out. I just don't know. I'm not sure. I love what you just <laughs> said, John. It's, it's just great. Um, I, I, I'm, I remember the Vietnam War. I was a student and, and, and uh, passionately opposed to the war. That was a pretty scary time, too. It was highly divided. And families, uh, very often generations, were, were deeply, bitterly divided over that issue. So perhaps this moment will calm down somewhat. I, I hate to be the um, Debbie Downer of this party, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of political science research that shows that political polarization is actually the norm for the United States. And actually, you know, the era of good feelings, um, you know, the, the, the time when we, you know, when, when Americans were, you know, mostly concerned about external threats um, during, especially during the Cold War, um, you know, where we saw less domestic division um, because they're overcome by these external threats. Um, those are actually the rare moments in our history. Um, and so the question is, how do we, you know, polarization doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing, right? Um, in fact, the American Political Science Association in the 1960s said, you know, we needed parties that, you know, stood for things. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think they're regretting somewhat <laughs> the, the, some of those recommendations, right? That that the parties would be able to give cues and, and take clear positions on the issues in order to mobilize voters and increase engagement in democracy. Um, so I don't think political polarization itself is necessarily a bad thing, but we have to think about, you know, what are the consequences of uh, the way in which elites behave um, and, and the role of elites and the precedents that they set, um, and, and especially in terms of whipping up the, the whims and the passions of the people, um, to use Madison's terms. Um, and also the, um, you know, there, there, there's just so many, there's, there's so many other roles too, that are mediating our process, including media, social media, all of these things that we've already, already talked about. Um, but I think in terms of, to kind of bring this thread back together, and, and, and Kami has, has alluded to this, we know from political psychology literature, um, you know, there, there is this tendency for us, um, the way our brains are structured to create in groups and out groups, right? Um, and, and to other others. Um, a way to overcome that is to give a joint task to those groups. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's one way to think about this. Um, what is it that we can do to work together? And that's a lot of why our approach is to be issue focused, right? Like, let's define together what the problem is, and then talk about what it is through dialogue, you know, talk about how we define the problem, the, the public problem, um, define what we can do about it, get perspectives, get multiple perspectives, and then work together in terms of solving that pressing public issue. Um, and so that's, that would kind of be our, our approach, um, or that is our approach <laughs> um, in, in thinking about this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that whole notion of, of common cause, right? Common cause, common grounds, and, and how do you, d does one beget the other, or can you, can you bring people together through this notion of, of common cause? Um, so as we, we have about 10 minutes left here, and um, I, I want to think about, so, you know, everybody joining not just this session, but all the other programming that's happened as part of the National Day of Dialogue is, is clearly concerned about how we move past these issues. And, uh, you know, Kara, to, to bring it back to, to what you were saying before, you know, we are all in, the, in, a, in a privileged place in some ways, because we, we have the the time and you know everything else that, that's required to participate in these things. How can how can everybody listening here tonight, you know, try to take this these these thoughts, these actions, these principles out into their their broader 
communities? What are our next our next steps forward? And, and how how can we all center this notion of of inclusion? So that dialogue is not just something that you know people with with college degrees who who work in white collar jobs can participate in in our spare time. How can we we make it part of a, our everyday lives? Jenna, you're asking the question: How do we fix it? <laughs> Maybe right? I am, Richard. Yeah. And I'm the only journalist on the panel. And I feel journalism really needs to change. Most big newsrooms have investigative units. Uh, they also need solutions teams. Uh, reporters do cover much more about what's wrong with the world than what might be right. And so and, and perhaps this, this goes back to us as consumers of journalism that we demand or, or we read or we watch uh, examples of, of solutions, not just in America, but overseas. Because right now, the us versus them story is the one that dominates the clashes, the contests, uh, the controversies uh, of journalism. And that's what seems to be fueling um, media consumption. So that one is also on us. Yeah, and are, are there uh, resources you would, would recommend, Richard, for folks who might want to learn more about that style of journalism or, or think, think more about that area of focus? Yeah, I'll, I'll point out two. One is the um, Solutions Journalism Network, which has examples on their website. It's a nonprofit that was set up by uh, uh, two journalists, former journalists in the New York Times, um, solutionsjournalism.org. And they have a solutions tracker. They share stories, a lot of stories every week on, on different examples of how solutions are covered. And then and the other example is All Sides Now, which, which presents the left, center, and right perspective on major news stories of the day. And, uh, you know, Kara, uh, Kami, what's, what can or, or should uh, colleges and universities be doing? Uh, you know, Kara, you, you've already talked about your, your approach at, at JMU, but are there other, other models, other things that, that you've seen that, that might be helpful as we think about how to move forward? Uh, the answer is yes. Yeah. So within the university system, a lot of universities are, are very risk averse. And whenever there's this any what somewhat controversial speaker uh, and the students don't want to hear it, then they don't allow that person on, on campus. There's an organization, FIRE, that tracks uh, those uh, disinvitations across the country. So part of it is universities need to do a better job of building resiliency among its student population. And that means part of the university's job is exposing people to ideas that are really uncomfortable uh, so that they can reckon with them because the real world is full of uncomfortable ideas and we need to know how to, to deal with them. So it's part of the sort of developing the opinion strength. The other job of universities uh, is obviously just education and subjects. But I'll tell you, in conversation, uh, facts may not matter. And I can tell you, all of us have been in conversations where you say, if I just tell the person the facts, then they'll come around on my way of thinking. Well, <laughs> it doesn't always work that way, right? Uh, and so I think the better skill that universities need to teach, and it doesn't have to be university, anybody can do this on, the, on their own. There's good books and there's good websites and good organizations. It's genuinely listening. I'll give you a quick story. So at ProCon, we had about 250,000 people a day coming to our website to learn about medical marijuana, euthanasia, Arab-Israeli conflict, death penalty, you name it, controversy, it was all there. And when we surveyed our audience and asked, how many of you changed your mind on an issue based on what you read? I thought if we break 5%, I'll be thrilled. We got to 40%. And I was stunned. How do you change 40% of people's opinions based on what they read? And the reason that they did is, or we found out, is because of listening. So they would go to this website and see their arguments for the thing they cared about laid out better than they could ever say it, better sources, better articulated. They're like, wow, that's exactly how I feel and better. And then staring at 
them on the other side of the page were arguments that they may not have ever listened to if they didn't first feel heard. The defense came down the, and, the, and the mind became open. So I really, I truly think this, that the number one skill you can apply to reducing uh, polarization or just disagreement is listening, but listening to understand. And listening is not, it's harder than you think it is to do it well, uh, but if you can do it well, the other person will trust you more. And now you have a power because you have their trust. And if you have their trust, then they can you can influence their opinions more. Uh, and these are powers that we would not have if we didn't listen. So I, I'd say if anyone walks away from this conversation listening to my voice, the number one thing I would want them to know is listen to understand it's the best skill you're going to take into reducing polarization in America. Wonderful. That was fantastic, um, Kami. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree, especially on your points of universities needing to become less risk averse. <laughs> Um, and, and I think also, you know, I think, and this is something, you know, where somebody on a campus, um, I am constantly having to push, right. And, and one of our mottos is that we lean into the politics and lean into pressing, um, you know, at our own university to sort of say, like, we're not going to be afraid to not have these conversations, um, and to take, you know, we, we have this whole program called tent talks. Um, where we take public issues and create public spaces where students who are just walking to another class or walking, going about their day, bump in to us um, at our tent and have the opportunity to learn um, and engage in conversation about a pressing public issue. So I think universities can do a much better job of creating public spaces um, or public spheres. Um, you know, most, some of us have residence lives. I think part, you know, ensuring, you know, ensuring that our residence life programming, you know, has a curricular component that, that you know, where, where people who are from a whole range of different backgrounds are actually living together. Um, I think that's an amazing space to to explore and I think finally we need to sort of break down the walls that we have in our communities um, you know and, and and the bubbles that we often have as universities where we aren't bringing community members in to have these conversations alongside our students and making sure that our students see themselves as part of the student the communities in which we are embedded as universities um, so I'll stop there because I know we're out of time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that idea of, of tent talks. I feel like that's something that 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 anybody could do in in their community, regardless of if you're on on a college campus or not. Uh, so John, we'll we'll give you the the last word here. Uh, you know, I know you you come from the business world, and and everybody has has a job that they do. So are there are there ways that we can take some of these these ideas of these concepts we've been talking about into our work lives or, or things that, you know, businesses can do to aid in, in some of these problems that we've been talking about. Very dangerous to give me the last word. <laughs> uh, I, I would say very simply, because I know we are out of time. Uh, Dr. Howard Stevenson is a researcher, uh, has done a lot of incredible work on racial stress and racial literacy and has a organization called Lion Story. And he does a lot of workshops with organizations, uh, professional organizations outside of the university. And he says it best. He talks about the power of story, that once you get through understanding the personal story of the people that you're interacting with, right? On Twitter, it's very easy to just flame someone, deny someone, unfollow someone, kill someone. But once you know their personal story and what impacts them and affects them in a business environment, you may think twice about moving to different uh, pullers. Hey, we have to work together. We, may, we might as well get along. We might as well seek to understand before trying to be understood. So not only do I think the, there's, there's a lot of importance in content and competency, but also understanding the personal relationships that you're in and interacting in, in order to solve problems if you're in a professional organization. And we stress that in a lot of the organizational behavior and organizational development in our mentorship of the startups we work with in, in, in my professional life. Great. 
Well, uh, there were there were so many things that we did not get get to talk about. Uh, hopefully, we will have the opportunity to continue this this conversation in, in some forum. But I would just like to close uh, by thanking uh, again. Christy and Marin and the entire team at IDEOS for putting this event together and for helping all of us come together. Uh, thank you to, to all of you again, to, to Kami, to John, to Richard and to Kara for your insights and for, for modeling what you're, what you're preaching, right? You, we all have listened to, to each other and I think you did, did an exemplary job. So uh, please accept my virtual pat on the back to all of you and, and, and my thanks again to you and to everybody who joined us. Uh, so we will leave things there. Uh, I am Jenna Spinelli from the, the Democracy Group. Thank you all and uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.